uh, we have been talking about, about kingdom. And uh, last Sunday we talked about what, what are our responses to living in a world uh, that we have come to call uh, increasingly secular or post-Christendom. And so last Sunday we talked about what it meant to be in the world but not of the world. And of course, as, as is always the case, when it's not always what you say, it's what you don't say. You leave stuff out, you can be misunderstood. So I, I want to make a couple of comments uh, today in relation to what we talked about last Sunday to add uh, just a bit more perspective. One of the things that I didn't say, and I think needs to be said, is that any level of engagement with the world requires a corresponding level of spiritual maturity. Okay, let me say that again, because I don't want you to miss that. Any level of engagement with the world requires a corresponding level of spiritual maturity. So, we could also say that a recovering alcoholic shouldn't be going to the bar to witness. There we're talking common sense. The spiritually immature are unprepared to be in, but not of the world. So, clarity and firmness about who you are in Christ, about your limitations, about what your ethical standards are, those are all essential to maintaining your distinctive witness as being other in the world. So while I encourage you as a believer to be a witness in the world, I'm also saying that you also have to make sure that you're standing firmly as a believer. And I, and I believe, as parents, I've sometimes talked about our job as parents is to give roots and wings to our children. Roots, giving them stability and connection and wings. Well, you probably found that out once your toddler no longer allows you to put the spoon in their mouth and they take it away because now they want to do it. It starts very early. And it, it builds. They're going to be asking you for the car keys soon. I believe that the, part of this task of roots and wings also means that we help our children to grow in spiritual maturity so that they can maintain a unique witness within the context in which they find themselves. So I'm, 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 I'm adding to your job as a parent in terms of roots and wings, and please don't think that just because they have the Lord's Prayer in school or that there's a religious class they can go to that now you're off the hook and you don't need to be involved. You don't abdicate. It's part of our responsibility, roots and wings, to help our children to grow in spiritual maturity. Well, we uh, read uh, Matthew 5, uh, the first 12 verses, um, often called the Beatitudes this morning. And Jesus describes here the characteristics that are unique to those who are members of the family of God, uh, citizens of the kingdom of God. These are our characteristics if we are part of God's kingdom. And actually, he also shows how these citizens of the kingdom are distinguishable from everyone else in the world. Now, an interesting thing that I've been thinking about in processing is the idea that these Beatitudes have often been used in a prescriptive manner, prescribing. you got to do this. If you become a peacemaker, life will go better for you. If you've got to be more merciful, you need to be more gentle, you're not humble enough, etc., etc., And I I think that to read the Beatitudes this way is maybe to miss Jesus' point entirely. The Beatitudes are not a prescription for a better life. They are rather a description. So they're not prescriptive, they're descriptive. They're a description of what life in the kingdom of God looks like. 
So they describe this change in attitudes and values. They describe this change in people who are part of the kingdom of God and what they are like. So I don't think it's really Jesus' intention here to show us how we can lead better lives. This is descriptive, not prescriptive. Further to that, I would say that these eight characteristics, these eight separate characteristics, are, are not separate things. To a greater or lesser degree, they represent or they, they, they present themselves in the lives of those who call Jesus king. And that's part of the reason that I chose Galatians 5, and 23 as a call to worship verse, because I think there's a parallel here. Um, the gifts of the Spirit, you can't say, well, I have love but forbearance, I struggle with that, or I have patience but I don't have this one. You, you don't pick and choose because actually the fruit demonstrates the presence. So, so you could have these fruits to a greater or lesser degree depending on how much control the Holy Spirit has in your life, but it's not, a, it's not about picking and choosing and saying, well, I have this fruit, not this one. Together, that list of fruits are evidence of the working of the Holy Spirit in your life. And if you're like me, you'll have to admit that there's still work to be done. I'm, I'm far from finished. I'm far from perfect. I still need a lot of work here. So what I'm saying this morning is that the fruits of the Spirit are evidence of the presence of the Spirit, and I'm also saying that these Beatitudes are actually evidence, they describe what you and I as members of the kingdom are to increasingly look like. And the reason citizens of God's kingdom will become more and more like this is because these are the characteristics of their king. That's why. And, and because you and I want to be more and more like Jesus, then we become more and more like this. As you and I seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, as it says also in Matthew, we will also then become more righteous. So, the Beatitudes are not so much about what we should do as much as they are a picture of who Jesus is and what you and I are becoming. I hope that makes sense to you. It's, it's not so much a picture of what you and I should do as much as it is a picture of who Jesus is. And he came, he laid out, this is what I'm about. And if you're with me, then this resonates with you and this is what you're about as well. So Jesus is not telling us necessarily what to do. He's painting a picture of what you and I are becoming. So the kingdom of God is made up of citizens who are in a process. It's called sanctification. We're in a process of becoming more and more like Jesus. And God works in us, recreating our hearts and minds, reversing the power of sin in our lives, and reordering our priorities. And while we are not yet there, we are no longer what we used to be. Maybe we find ourselves in a parallel situation to the Israelites. They had left Egypt, but they weren't in the promised land yet when they were in the desert and in their wilderness wanderings. And, and you and I are not what we were, but we're not yet what we're becoming. <clears throat> in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus emphasizes that as members of God's kingdom, we are entirely different from others. Our thoughts are different. Our words are different. Our priorities will be different. Our value system will be different. Because we've been given a different heart, 
and a different mind, we operate with a different standard. We have different goals, different desires, different motivations. We have a different perspective on life. We're not citizens of the kingdom of this world, even though you maybe have a passport saying Canada. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. And so we are, in some senses, we're strangers in this land. And maybe the term that is used by our friends to the south, maybe you and I should see ourselves as resident aliens. This is not our home. We're passing through. And to be quite honest, our king has not called us to be popular. He's called us to be faithful. I'm guessing that anyone, and some of you have moved away from home, you can testify to the fact that being transplanted can be difficult and even uncomfortable. One never really feels at home as a transplant. And I'm here to say this morning that in God's kingdom, all of us have at least one thing in common. We're all transplants. We're all transplants. We are all... We live in a particular country, um, but our true home, our true citizenship is elsewhere. And as a church, we have the privilege of bearing the marks of God's kingdom and pointing the way out of darkness. And as I've said before, the, de- the world desperately needs the church to be the church, to reflect the kingdom of God, so that others will know where to turn to when their kingdom collapses. I really believe that one of the reasons Jesus has not come back yet is because he's still busy seeking new kingdoms, new, new citizens for his kingdom. He's willing to wait for a larger family. Well, if the Sermon on the Mount and these Beatitudes uh, points toward a new attitude, a new heart, more than outward obedience, then what does it look like to be a disciple in the kingdom of God? And I want to go through a number of qualities and, and just kind of reflect them. I think that sometimes we need a handle on something and, and ask ourselves, how are we doing with that? So I want to mention a bunch of qualities that I think are qualities of a disciple. And by the way, the Great Commission at the end of Matthew does not challenge us to go out and make converts. It doesn't. It says go and make disciples. A disciple is somebody who follows Jesus. And we're not talking about converts, we're talking about disciples. So what's the first quality? First quality of a disciple is passionately committed to Jesus Christ. A disciple is passionately committed to Jesus Christ. God is calling you to come close and learn from him. And one of the primary indicators that you have become a disciple is when your passion shifts from worldly worldly desires to Jesus. There's a bit of a strong verse in Luke, chapter 14, verse 25, where Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, I realize that Jesus is exaggerating to make a point. He's talking about priorities. This is not telling you to hate your father and mother and your wife and your children. Because in another breath, he tells us that we're supposed to love God and love our neighbors ourselves. So that's not what he's saying. He's saying, priority-wise, you and I need to put Jesus first. I think that we often tend to elevate information above relationship and obedience. Jesus is the truth, and the truth is a person, not a principle. This relational view 
of truth stands in stark contrast to the world's way of thinking and demands more than mere intellectual assent. Jesus, when he says, follow me, he's not saying my teachings. No, he says me. He doesn't say, listen to me. He says, follow me. It's a widely accepted concept that we can choose to accept Christ only because we need him as Savior and that we have the right to postpone our obedience to him as Lord as long as we want to. And I think that's unbiblical. I go as far as to say I think that's heresy. Savior and Lord go together. You can't have it split. Choose one and, and not the other. Quality number two. A disciple has an extraordinary love for people. I really believe that Jesus modeled extraordinary love for all people. And he came to teach us to do the same. He came to break down the barriers that separate us. We are meant to be light in the world, demonstrating the Father's love for others. John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35 says, So now I am giving you a new commandment, love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Character is formed through action. It's also transformed through action to enter the path of obedience to Jesus Christ, intending to obey him and to learn whatever I have to learn in order to obey him. That is the true path of spiritual formation or transformation. A disciple identifies as a follower of Christ who is on a journey of being, becoming more and more like Jesus, loving other people. Quality number three, a disciple has the heart of a servant. Disciple of Christ is characterized by humility. The Bible tells us that to be great, we must serve others. Humility is at the center of the heart of a servant. We must decrease so that Christ's character may increase in us. Matthew 23, 11, Jesus says, The greatest among you must be a servant. We must be equipped to become servants rather than consumers. Jesus said, Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I think that we're brought into the kingdom to introduce others to the king. As I said last Sunday, we're merely receptionists. We're, we're trying to point other people to Jesus by what we say, by what we do. And I think that if we fail both in our intentions and the use of our resources to place the mission of serving others in front of us before serving ourselves, then we will not escape the gravitational force of inwardness. I'm talking about being outward-focused instead of inward-focused. It's so easy to be inward-focused, but I think we're meant to be outward-focused. <clears throat> Self-centered behavior is actually probably a normal human condition that probably can't be overcome without submission to God and to his priorities. Quality number four, a disciple is sensitive to and submitted to the Holy Spirit. The more connected you are to the Holy Spirit, the more connected you are to God. He's the presence, the power, and the anointing of God in your life. And this is, this is one of those things that you have to cultivate. If uh, we had music in here and turned up the volume loud enough, you wouldn't be able to hear my voice anymore. And you would strain to pick out my voice with all of the, we'll call it, white noise behind you. And I think that our world produces a lot of white noise, and it's so hard sometimes to hear the Holy Spirit. And I think what you've got to do is when your conscience or the Holy Spirit speaks to you, act on it right away. 
uh, because when you do that, you're affirming that you're responding and, and your ability to be perceptive to that voice will increase. John 14, verse 16 and 17 says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he lives with you and he will be in you. The Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit in our, in our lives produces a fruitful life. When we evaluate discipleship, we are evaluating or inspecting fruit. Religion will not produce fruit. Christian education will not produce fruit. Healthy organisms produce fruit or reproduce themselves. The fruit of the Spirit is the supreme test of discipleship. It's not how much you know. It's not how theologically eloquent and sound you are. It's the presence of fruit in your life. And of course, conformity to the image of Christ will produce that fruit. And I realize that the, product, the production of spiritual fruit in your life is the work of the Holy Spirit. But as disciples, we are to engage in the process of being surrendered to Christ and His rule in our lives, removing obstacles and barriers that clutter our souls, and then also developing habits and spiritual disciplines uh, that will help us to practice His presence in our lives. And as we submit to Him, as we submit to the divine to the divine potter, he will continue to shape us with the fruit of the Spirit in our lives so that we can produce fruit. And yes, the fruit of the Spirit is simply the inner character of Jesus himself that is brought about in our lives. <clears throat> it is Christ formed in us. Quality number five, a disciple is governed by God's word. Uh, you might think that goes without saying, but sometimes it, it's it's. It's tempting to, to read the parts that you like and leave out the parts you don't, or to interpret the way you want. We have to view, as disciples of Christ, we elevate God's Word above our feelings. We respond in obedience to God's Word. As John eight thirty one and 32 says, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So, we, we, we accept the authority of God's Word, we live under the authority of God's Word, and we allow God's Word to mold and shape us, to change our attitudes and values, to change us, and so that we become more and more like Christ. Quality number six. A disciple lives a morally pure life. I said last Sunday that we... Uh, I'd, I'd probably exaggerate, I'm generalizing to make a point, but I said that I think that we have for many years emphasized purity and, and put 95% of our effort into being pure and holy, and that's all fine and good, but I'd, I'd like us to swing the pendulum over a wee bit and spend a bit more effort in reaching the lost. That doesn't mean that we give, that, that we quit making an effort at being pure, but I, I think the important part is also to reach the lost. So yes, a disciple lives a morally pure life. Because God is a good Father, He invites us to share in His character. And as followers of Jesus, we are meant to be holy, because God is holy. First Peter 1, 15 and 16 says, But just as He who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. 
2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. So yes, we're called, we're called to holiness as part of the larger picture. Quality number seven. A disciple is evangelistically bold. Now, don't confuse this here. I'm not telling you that you have to have the gift of evangelism. I'm not telling you you need to spend half of your day on a street corner handing out tracts and, and, and preaching loudly. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that when we receive Christ, His Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us, and we recognize that the world is searching. Many people are searching. And so you and I need to be bold enough to share our faith in word and deed. And it has been said, witness all the time and sometimes use words. I think it's time to stand out, to be different, to share the good news about Jesus. Mark 16, 15, he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. The common belief is that a Christian is someone who by faith accepts Jesus as Savior, receives eternal life, and is safe and secure in the family of God while a disciple is a more serious Christian, active in the practice of spiritual disciplines and engaged in evangelizing and training others. While discipleship ought, ought to be the means and the process by which kingdom citizens are equipped to be effective ambassadors and kingdom witnesses in this age. So, I, I'm not telling you you have to be polished. Um, I, I, I think really... A lot of people aren't terribly, necess not necessarily interested in what you know. I think probably your best witness is to share how Jesus has changed your life. This is, I, I follow Jesus and this is the impact, this is what he's done in my life. To share a personal experience um, will make all the difference. Quality number eight, a disciple engages in biblical community. God said it's not good for a man to be alone or a woman. He wired us to function best in the context of biblical community. We are a family, a family of God through faith in Jesus, so we don't run this race alone. Acts chapter 2 describes the life of the early church, and 2.42 says they spent their time learning from the apostles, and they were all like a family with each other. They broke bread and prayed together. This fellowship, this koinonia was part of it, God didn't design us to be Lone Ranger Christians. God designed the church to mobilize Christians to attack the gates of hell. In other words, the church is not to be a place of safety for believers, but rather a gathering place to accomplish his mission. Quality number nine. A disciple is just and generous. What we put our hope in and our trust in guides our thoughts and decisions. And we are not to be ruled by money. It steals our hearts and affections. God is to have first place in our lives. What matters to God is what we do with what we have that creates eternal significance. And then finally, number 10, a disciple lives with purpose. I've sometimes said that believers above anyone else, have a reason for living. We have a purpose. We've been given this amazing purpose. The only way to know your purpose is to know God. Lean on Him, and He will equip you to fulfill the task that He has called you to complete. Ephesians 1, verse 11 and 12 says, it is, It's in Christ that we find out who we are and what we are living for. Long before 
we first heard of Christ and got our hopes up, he had his eye on us, had designs on us for glorious living, part of the overall purpose he is working out in everything and everyone. We fail to incarnate God's kingdom in this present age as long as we define a disciple of Christ as someone who has asked Jesus into his or her heart and is waiting to go to heaven when they die. It's more than that. We are here as disciples to advance the kingdom of God in this world. There is an urgent need for an uprising of those who have been redeemed, restored, and released in the world to reflect the character and priorities of Christ. That's what we're called to as members of the kingdom. We can't settle for a religious program geared toward consumers passively waiting for heaven. No. The world that Christ came to save is in desperate need of a missional movement. A company of kingdom witnesses called and equipped to compellingly incarnate the reign of God, revealing the image of God, carrying out the mission of God, and being witnesses and and for the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The Beatitudes reflect characteristics of what we're like. It describes what, as members of God's kingdom, we look like. I'm going to ask uh, Ethan and Mo to come up and uh, see if we have some comments or questions that we'll try and, and engage with. Uh, then we'll uh, do a bit more singing as well. <clears throat> I'll, start, I'll start with a comment, um, and uh, this is about, about doing life together and being, being together as disciples. It says, as someone who used to run when I was in training, uh, that was usually done alone, and I found it hard. But when the day of the event came and there were friends and family on the sidelines cheering me on, it was amazing how much further I could run. Uh, so yes, we need to run the race together as a family of believers. I thought that was, that was just an encouragement for us to, to do that. Any, any comments on that? Uh, yeah, I think uh, it's, it's easier to do things when you find groups of like-minded people that you can do them with. And I think it's, uh, community is a good thing. Okay, uh, a question for you. Uh, and this goes back to the comment about, uh, you made a comment, uh, the difference between making converts and making disciples. So if we're called to make disciples and not converts, when is a convert a disciple? Or, or is it that order? You know, like, okay. maybe that's a, a that's question. Good question. Good question. Well, I'm just. I, I'd like yeah, I know. Him. I know. He's he's just looking over at me. It <laughs> it is a good question. Uh, I got to be careful because it could just be a matter of semantics. Like you can be a convert, but still like a disciple. I think it it depends on. Uh, well, it depends on what the life of that person looks like after being converted and what the relationship between 
you as the disciple and the person you're trying to disciple along with you looks like. That would be my answer. But we don't have time to unpack this, but, but conversion, we sometimes think of conversion as you're going this way and then there's an event and then you, you move all of a sudden completely in the opposite direction. And for some people, it might be that traumatic, but for others, it's a series of events. Uh, it's like turning a, a, a semi around. It takes more space, more time, and there's a series of events. There are those that would say discipleship actually starts already before conversion. <laughs> so I, the point I want to make is that we've got to erase this idea in our head that we can get a fire insurance plan and, and be saved, but that there's no other commitment, no obedience, no discipleship involved. Yeah, I, I, remember, um, I remember hearing Brian McLaren, and we can all have opinions mm -hmm. on Brian McLaren, some of his, his teaching, but uh, I remember hear, hearing him make the comment about the fact that uh, when a person chooses to care about what you as a follower of Jesus think and actually tries to, to pattern their lives after you, you know, looking at and, and cares about what's going on in your life as a follower of Jesus, they are becoming a disciple whether they realize it or not. Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't know, for me that was, that was a, a picture of that, that really connected with me. and It was this idea that as I, as I walk with someone and as I inv invite them into my life, me as a follower of Jesus, um, there are uh, those those people are are choosing to become disciples, whether they realize it or not. And our job is to continue to foster that and to grow that. I think uh, I, I think Ethan, you're right, and and semantics, right, is a challenge. Uh, we could we could develop this further and say that there's what about a mentor? I would maybe pattern my life after a mentor. But to me, there's a difference between being a mentee or following a mentor and being a disciple because the authority for me of Jesus as Lord and as a disciple, now I'm called to obedience. If, if I have a mentor, I may follow some stuff that my mentor does, but not necessarily everything. Sorry, just trying to... Uh... We just got some, some messages that, that came in, and uh, so just seeing here. Uh, does reaching the lost not happen alongside living pure lives? Uh, John thirteen thirty five says, By your love they will know that you are my disciples. When we live morally pure lives, we are, uh, will we not be evangelistic in our lives in our lives uh, testimony. Not sure I understood if you were saying sometimes being a witness is more important than living a pure life. Can you please clarify this? So I think that, that yeah. point right at the beginning that yeah. you were talking about and, is... And, and what I would say is I'm, I'm, I'm not detracting from living morally pure lives. Uh, my problem is that sometimes we've viewed the way to live a morally pure life is to isolate ourselves from the world. We disengage from the world. We live in, in, in isolated communities. We don't get involved in, in community committees or events. We, we, we retreat to the safety of our church. And what I'm saying is that that's not good enough. Salt that stays in the salt shaker can last forever, but it doesn't do much good unless you take it out of the shaker and put it on your food. 
So that's my argument. Yes, absolutely. Live a pure, holy life. And as you do that where you work and where you study and where you play and as you get involved in uh, different uh, community events and different things, you're going to be salt and light there. So I'm not, I'm not trying to downgrade purity. I'm just trying to elevate our engagement with the world. I, I would agree with that comment. But... I, I think as we evangelize, like, I think it needs to be done through word and deed. And I feel like everybody kind of, the thing that they're more prone to do, they tend to really focus on that. And they say, well, I'm going to show that I'm a Christian by what I do. But then they can get a little bit uh, scared or a little bit whatever when they have opportunities to talk about it. And there are other people who love talking about it, but... You know, maybe they're not the greatest at, you know, always being there for other people when they need to be. So I would challenge people as they go through life, if they have one that they maybe lean towards doing, try to do the other one a little bit too. And, and maybe we could add to that, being comes before doing. Hmm. Right? See. See. A couple other comments here. Uh, one was Rick Warren suggests that the church has more than one purpose. These purposes are worship, fellowship, discipleship, ministry, and mission. So even though we temporarily can't uh, meet in, in person for worship together, we have other reasons and places uh, to be church. And, uh, and it's just something that popped into this person's head as we were, as we were going through this. I... I had one other comment, and um, and then we'll uh, we'll wrap this section up. It I said uh, it said here. Notice you said evangelistically bold, not evangelistically rude. Um, not shark evangelism. And 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 I I think that there is something yes. about about our boldness, right? Um, that was actually my comment. Um, I'll just be honest. Yeah, uh, may as well. Uh, I'll put it out there. Confession for the whole is world. good for the soul. Yeah, exactly. But it's it's one of those things where where we need to we need to be confident in what it is that Christ has done for us. We need to be confident in in who we are, and that confidence begins to uh, to be to pour out of us to the to the lives of others as we as we move forward. We don't need to be obnoxious, yeah. and 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 when we advocate for our rights, sometimes we're being obnoxious. Like just think about that for a bit. When when when. Yeah, like, I don't think we need to be obnoxious. I think that we can, we can model. Uh, we, when, you know what? When you show love and acceptance to another person, and, and at the same time you model a particular uh, way of thinking and a particular behavior, um, people often warm up to that. We, we don't need to hit people over the head with a Bible or, or like, Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. I don't, it's not like I'm beating it in. I think that's all the, the comments that we have. Let's pray and then, thank you, Ethan, let's pray and then we'll get the praise band to come up uh, and we'll do some singing. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, your word. Thank you for um, Matthew 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount, that gives us so much guidance and so much clarity on what you came to do and what you represent. And I pray that as we uh, seek to um, 
allow the Holy Spirit to have more and more control of our lives, that the fruit of the Spirit and these characteristics expressed in the Beatitudes would be increasingly evident in our lives. And as we carry ourselves uh, that way um, in purity, where we live and where we study, where we work, um, that we would be salt and light and that you would be able to use us to draw other people to yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.